33 give or take, around this very time of the year, during the Jewish festival of Passover, just outside the very famous city of Jerusalem on a shape like a skull, there's a Jewish man dying on a Roman crucifix. Now, criminals executed in this barbaric fashion all the time, flanked my microphone cutting in and out. Is that all good? I will continue. Uh, now, criminals were executed in this barbaric fashion all the time. And this Jewish man is flanked on either side by other criminals. But there's something particular and special and unusual about this death row candidate. An official sign is placed above his head. It's written in three languages and it says, The King of the Jews. And this scene is anything but somber. A large crowd is gathered and many of them are shouting insults and abuse towards this man, ostensibly because of the words on that sign above his head. The Romans mock him. The Jewish leaders sneer at him. Even one of the criminals beside him joins in the abuse. It even seems like the heavens are against him as darkness consumes the land. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. And this man, whose name is Jesus, is about to draw his final breath. And it's this moment in history has gone on to become one of the most influential moments of all time. One of the most talked about, painted about, debated about, written about, one of the most significant moments of all time. You're here today because of this moment. And to find out why so much is on the line, we're going to take a deep dive into how we got here to this moment in history. And we're going to be using Luke's account of what's gone on. And we're going to look at four characters, four voices, if you will, four rejections around Jesus. There's the soldiers, there's the rulers, there's the darkness... And then there is the criminals as well. And it'd be so great if you're in the room or in the top hall here, if you could take out the uh, copies of Luke that you've been given, open up to page 73, because that's where our story is uh, today. If you're following along online, under the display window, there'll be a link uh, to the Bible Gateway passage, so you'll be able to follow along there as well. And if you're in the room today, if for whatever reason it would be helpful for you to have a transcript of what I'm saying, if that helps you to hear, helps you to listen, then just please feel free to put your hand up and I'll just get someone who's close to the door to grab uh, the copies of it and they'll pass them around. So please just don't be embarrassed, hold your hand up and we'll make sure we get you a copy as well. How about I pray and we'll get into God's Word. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the joy it is of Good Friday. We thank you for the words in this passage. We pray that you might open our hearts and open our eyes so that we can see Jesus clearly. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start with the broad context and look at the, the Romans and work our way in from there. Now, the Roman Empire is represented by the presence of the soldiers in verse 36. So if you have a look with me at verse 36. 
The soldiers also came up to Jesus and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Now in AD 33, we were moving towards the heart of the Roman Empire, which was established in 27 BC when Augustus Caesar took power. Israel is part of that empire. And although they're allowed to have their own leaders, ultimately they are under the control of the Romans. Now one thing we need to know about the Romans and the way they uh, ruled was that they valued peace. Valued peace. It's quite interesting when Rome assumed authority over a nation, they didn't force that nation to be Romans. They allowed them to continue with their own traditions, some of their own culture even some of their own religion as well. The only thing they asked was that the nations under their control pay taxes to Caesar and that they adopt some of their Roman gods into their cultures as well. That was the way that the Roman Empire kept peace and kept the nations reasonably under control. But there were hard limits as to what they would allow. You see, if you destroyed the peace in any way, the Romans had the best organised, best trained and most feared army in the world. If any leader or nation opposed Rome, Caesar would send his legions to remove the troublemakers and to take over that situation. Now, the Jews would have known about this firsthand. Because when Augustus Caesar came to power, one of his key allies around the Jewish colonies was a guy named Herod. In fact, Herod was so helpful to Augustus that Augustus allowed him to be the leader over the Jews and to, in fact, to call himself the king of the Jews. You've probably heard of Herod. He's the king that the wise men visit on the way to Bethlehem at the beginning of the Bible accounts. I should also say that he's also the guy who um, orders the genocide of all the children under two around Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth as well. So, you know, he's a piece of work. After Herod dies, though, his quote-unquote kingdom is divided into four and it's given to some of his children. It's eventually merged into three parts. Now, the northern uh, northern province was led by Herod Philip, The area around Galilee was led by Herod Antipas. But the larger section, including the area around Jerusalem, was led by Herod's son, Archelaus. And Archelaus was not a good ruler over the people. He ruled with an iron fist and he made the Jewish people very unhappy. And as a result of his hard-hearted, iron-fisted leadership, there were a lot of insurrections, a lot of violent riots around Jerusalem. And this is a problem for Rome, because they've broken their cardinal rule. You must keep the peace. So Rome sends in the legions to quell the insurrections, and they remove Archelaus. Rome brings in their own person to be 
um, governor now over this area. It's a man you've probably heard of. His name is Pontius Pilate. You don't mess with Rome. And that idea is reinforced to the general population of people by the way they dealt with severe criminals. In fact, the Romans invented one of the most brutal ways of execution in crucifixion. So if you were a criminal, especially if you were someone who came up against Rome, then they would hang you up on a piece of wood, nail your flesh down with nails until you were too weak to breathe anymore. The fact that it was so painful and the fact that it took so long was a way of them saying to the criminal, you deserve this because you came up against Rome. But it was also a deterrent for the rest of the population. If you go against Rome, then this will happen to you as well. Now, the charge against Jesus is that he's a king. That's what the sign says. So no wonder the Roman soldiers are standing at the base of the cross mocking Jesus. So you're a king, are you? They're shouting out. You're going to take down Rome, are you? Well, go on. Get down. Save yourself. Let's see it. The soldiers have mocked Jesus after his trial. They've pretended to worship him. They've even claimed their own souvenirs from this whole situation by dividing up his clothes. A king, eh, they say. Yeah, right. That's what these guys are thinking at the time. I don't know about you, but I find history amazing. And one of the beautiful things about Luke's gospel is that Luke is the historian amongst the four accounts of Jesus' life. And uh, in, the, in, in person today on site, every person who's sitting in a seat uh, will receive a copy of Luke's gospel. I'd love you to take that with you today and have a read through this historical account. In the account, you'll see Augustus Caesar, you'll see Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, Pontius Pilate and other historical figures as we see this account grounded in history. But there is Jesus up on the cross and to understand why he's been charged as a king, we now need to go into the story of the Jewish rulers who were also at the base of the cross sneering at him. Have a look at verse 35. The people uh, stood watching the rulers and they even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Now the key here is that word Messiah. You may have heard of that word before. It's the Old Testament word for God's special king. It's the exact equivalent as the New Testament word Christ. So Messiah or Christ, same thing. And if you knew your Old Testament well, and the rulers here were experts at the Old Testament, then you would know that God had made a lot of promises about the coming future promised king that he was going to send. Because when you read the Old Testament, you see that kingship is deeply personal to God. Because from the very formation of his people, it was always God's intention to be the king over his people. You see, it's God who saves his people out of slavery in Egypt. It's God who gives the people the moral, civil and ceremonial laws. It's God who leads his people into a land of their own. And it's God who provides and protects his people. But as our church learnt a couple of years ago in the book of 1 Samuel, we know that the people don't want God to be their king. They want a human king, just like all the other nations around them. And so God provides because he's generous 
generations and generations of kings. You've probably heard of some of the most famous ones. King David, for example. King Solomon. Now, the job of the king is to lead the people towards God. And if you want a great summary of the histories throughout the Old Testament, it's this. Where the king goes, the people go too. Where the king goes, the people go too. So when the king is faithful to God, then the people follow suit and they're faithful to God as well. But when the king is unfaithful and worships idols, the people follow him and are unfaithful to God as well. The sad history throughout the Old Testament tells a story of king after king after king who are disobedient, who are unfaithful, who are sinful. King after king keep rejecting God. And so every generation of God's people keeps rejecting God as well. They keep living their own way away from God. And eventually God says, enough, you don't want to be my people. God gives them over to their enemies who invade the land, destroy the kingdom, and scatter the people everywhere. At that point in history, you might think, well, that's the end for God's people. Yet God still loves his people, and he reaches out to them in the words of the prophets. In the Psalms, he says, there'll come a time when I will bring a new king, one who I myself will install. He'll be my son. The prophet Isaiah told that they would recognize this king when he comes by his ministry. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, and the lame will leap for joy. So what's this king going to do? Well, the prophet Ezekiel says that he'll be a saviour and bring God's people back into relationship with God. How's he going to do that? Well, the prophet Zechariah said he will ride into Jerusalem triumphant on a donkey, and then he will be pierced to cleanse the people. How long is this forgiveness going to last? Well, the prophet Jeremiah tells us that. We're told that it will last forever. This king is not going to build an earthly empire, but a heavenly kingdom in and beyond this world, one that will even go past death. And so you can imagine the Old Testament people of God saying, well, where can we find this king? Where is he going to be born? Well, the prophet Micah tells us where. In the town of Bethlehem. So at the beginning of Luke's account, under the reign of Augustus Caesar, during the kingship of Herod, a child is born and a whole heavenly host uh, ring out these words. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. It's an announcement in the darkness that Jesus is God's promised Old Testament king. And he proves all the promises that have been said about him to be true. The miracles just give testimony to his identity. You remember the the rulers at the bottom of the cross cry out, he saved others. It's true. He did save others. He saved paralytics from their illness, lepers from their disease, the possessed from their demons, the unclean from their bleeding. The blind can see in Jesus' ministry, the deaf can hear, and the lame will leap for joy. So shouldn't this be good news to the leaders of God's people? 
I mean, shouldn't they be celebrating and rejoicing? Shouldn't they embrace that finally the fulfillment of God's plans are here? Well, they don't. I mean, in part because Jesus directly accuses them. He says to them that just like the leaders of the past, they are unfaithful leaders of God's people, that they are in fact leading God's people away from God by their human uh, regulations and rules. They look at Jesus' ministry and uh, when they hear him say, your sins are forgiven, they immediately go, well, that's something only God is able to do. So you are a blasphemer. You're taking God's name and bringing it down to earth. You're making God nothing. How dare you? And what's more, these miracles that you're doing, they're saying, many of them were done on the Sabbath, a day of rest. You can't possibly be uh, connected to God if you're breaking the law. You see, they, they can't understand the miracles and they won't listen to the teaching of Jesus. Their hearts are just set against God. They believe that God's law is telling Uh, them that Jesus must die but how how are they going to get rid of this guy well by the end of the account they know he claims to be a king you know who won't like that Rome so they bring a charge before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate this is what Luke says and the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate and they began to accuse him saying We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of tax to Caesar and claims to be the Messiah, king. Now, when Pilate first hears these claims, he just dismisses them quickly. This guy, a king? Get out of here. And he dismisses and sends uh, Jesus away quickly. When the Jewish leaders return a few hours later, though, they've figured out how to make the charge against Jesus radioactive. What do they do? They incite the crowds so that they are shouting and they're protesting. And now it's a problem for Pilate. Remember what Rome values above all else? Peace. Remember what Pilate's predecessor, Archelaus, was removed for. He wasn't able to control the people. This is how the courtroom scene plays out in Luke's account. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their request. Pilate is a people pleaser, but he's also a political pragmatist as well. Like a modern day social media campaign, his hand has been pressured into signing these execution documents. He's not above sticking it to the Jews though, he doesn't really like them. So he puts a sign above this criminal, Jews, this is your king. If you read John's account, the Jews really don't like that. Don't say that, don't say that, just say that he claimed to be our king. And Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. So the rulers got what they wanted. Jesus is now cursed. He's hanging on a tree on his way to death. Now you can look at all the history and see all the human factors that come together to bring about this moment in history. 
But there's something more than that here in this moment that we're looking at. The third rejection comes not from anything that humans can control. It's the darkness which descends over Skull Hill and it speaks to something supernatural about the scene. Have a look at verse 44. It was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining. There are some accounts outside of the Bible. You can look up Thallus or Phlegon. Accounts that outside of the Bible testify to this darkness happening. Now we know, of course, that it couldn't have been an eclipse because eclipses can't happen at the Passover. It's the time of a full moon. So what we're seeing here is not a natural event. Something supernatural is happening. It wasn't that Jesus happened to be crucified during a blackout. Instead, Jesus was crucified and darkness then descended over the land. In biblical terms, this is a sign of God's judgment. But that's exactly what Jesus expected. As we saw last week at church, in a discussion with his disciples about him being the Messiah, that is God's chosen king, Jesus then went on to say the following words. He said, the Son of Man, that's Jesus' name for himself, I must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and the teachers of the law, that's the Jewish rulers, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. You see, Jesus knew where this journey was heading. This is what God said was going to happen to his king. Remember the words of Isaiah, of Zechariah from the Old Testament. He said, They will look on me, the one they have pierced. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. And so Jesus, he goes to the cross. He doesn't stand in the way, he doesn't protest. Because his people are without a king. They've moved away from God and they face death. And so King Jesus goes to his people, he leads them and he stands up as their king. As they face death and judgment, Jesus now acts for the the nation of his people. He goes to Jerusalem, he is rejected and suffers for his people. He gives his life as an exchange for the lives of his people. He does it so that sinners can be saved. Remember the cries from on the ground below the cross were, save yourself. I mean, just think about the miracles for just a second. All those miracles that Jesus did. Do you think that Jesus couldn't have saved himself if he wanted to? You think it would have been hard for him to get down off the cross and to heal himself? It wasn't the nails that kept him up there. It was the devotion to his people. Because if he had saved himself, then he would not have saved others. He would not have been their king. The mockers, ironically, they can't understand. They don't understand this. And so despite the taunts and the accusations, the king was never there to save himself. He was there to die under the judgment of God for his people. If he doesn't die, we can't be saved. And so that changes the picture of the cross. You see, Jesus is not some despicable, pathetic man, weakly proclaiming from the cross, I'm a king, I'm a king, believe in me. 
Rather, he's the general of an army who goes to the prisoner of war camp where his people are held hostage, hostage to sin, hostage to evil, awaiting judgment. He's gone up to the razor fence and he's sliced a cross-shaped hole in the wire and he's pushed the fence open with his arms and he's called out to his people, come, come be saved, come this way. The barrier that jailed his people is the barrier that tears through his hands and his feet and his people can escape because of him to freedom. For Jesus' way is the only way of salvation. He is the king that the sign above him says he is. Well, the last two voices in this moment bring a connection for us because they're the voices of responding to this moment in the moment. You see, there's two criminals, both convicted, both under judgment, unable to save themselves and facing death. Here is the, the, they're right beside the one called king. So how will they respond to Jesus? Have a look at verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. So to be clear... He's heard the mocking from on the ground below him and he has joined in with the mocking and the sneering. He's not asking out of a good faith. This criminal is portrayed as such a tragic figure. The darkness of God's judgment that's on Jesus is on him as well. He's about to die, but he won't turn to the king who is right beside him. He's the equivalent of the prisoner when the general breaks through the wall of the prisoner of war camp and calls out, come on, receive salvation. He's the prisoner who's lying on his bed going, no thanks. And by the way, you stink. You notice Jesus' reply to this criminal. Nothing. He gets nothing. But note the second criminal. He understands his position all too well. Do you notice there in verse 40 that he is fearful not of dying but of facing God's judgment as a sinner who deserves punishment? I mean, there is nothing he can do except to turn to the one called king, the one who's right beside him, and ask for mercy. I reckon verses 42 and 43 have to be some of the most beautiful verses in the whole of the Bible. Have a look. Then the criminal said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. The man asks Jesus as a king to bring him into his kingdom, a kingdom that will go even through death. And just look what Jesus says in response. Yes, the cross has opened up the way for sinners to ask for salvation, to ask for forgiveness, to ask for cleansing, to ask for acceptance from God. The death of the king means means life, even through death, for those people who ask for help. 
And if we could step away from this scene for just one second, uh, it's important to note that the pattern that Jesus establishes with this second criminal here at the cross is the pattern for the rest of history. Any sinner who recognises that they are out of step with God, knowing that they only really deserve judgment, can come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. And the person who asks with a genuine heart, I meant really means it, and really believes that Jesus is the king who can save, well, Jesus' answer to any sinner is yes, you are forgiven. The criminal had nothing going for him except that he asked Jesus for help. And in that moment, he was forgiven and welcomed into a relationship with God. Jesus says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. The moment in history that we're looking at is a moment of salvation. And it's a moment of invitation to every person in every generation now that Jesus is not just the king, but that he's my king, that he's our king. And we can ask for help as the one who died for us. You see, moments like that in history can impact moments like this one right now in history. And God uses moments like this one right now to change lives where you can make a response to Jesus. Maybe you've never really done it. A modern-day version of that second criminal's prayer might look like a prayer for us in this. Try these words. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the Messiah who came to save sinners. I'm one of those people who has rejected God. Uh, Please forgive me because of your death. Help me to know your salvation and to live as part of your kingdom now and forevermore. Amen. Now, it's a bit wordier than the criminal on the cross, but you know what? We're not being crucified, so maybe we've got a little bit more time to be able to say the words. I mean, I'll come back to that prayer in just a second, and maybe if you'd like to pray with me, we can pray it together. Because we need to come back and we need to finish this moment in 33 AD. Because that prayer is only effective if Jesus dies. I mean, Jesus can only say, today you'll be with me in paradise if he dies in this moment. Forgiveness can only come if he doesn't listen to the Roman soldiers, if he doesn't listen to the rulers of the Jews, if he doesn't listen to the first criminal. You see, salvation can only come if the king doesn't save himself from judgment and instead at the cross, dies. We need to finish the story. Welcome to a moment in history. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. They came to the place called the Skull. They crucified him there, along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. 
the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun had stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Our King and our Saviour. If you'd like to pray with me, then maybe just in the quiet of your own mind and heart, you can pray this prayer with me. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the Messiah who came to save sinners. I'm one of those people, one of those sinners who has rejected God. Please forgive me because of your death. Help me to know your salvation and to live as part of your kingdom now and forevermore. Amen.